Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 2nd, 2016, and this is episode 1863 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. Friday is the day that we do the listener council show, or I'm sorry, the expert council show. This is where we have your questions for the expert council members. We have seven of them up on deck today. And uh, here's what we're going to be talking about. John Pugliano will talk about international funds and investing in them within 401ks. Stephen Harris will tell you what you can and can't fix when it comes to a broken inverter. What are the user serviceable components there? Michael Jordan on uh, someone using uh, honey supers as a hive body in a pinch and Now what do I do? This is uh, really going to show you uh, what I mean when I say expert counsel. These guys are experts. Michael's answers are just outstanding. Uh, Brian Black from ITS Tactical talking about concealed carry. When you have to wear professional office dress clothing, that's a little different than the ways many of us dress, I guess. Um, Doc Bones on medical prep when traveling. Blending poultry feed and getting the right protein, protein percentages from Nick Ferguson. And then what about you know these... You know, wilderness or barbarian things where you see the guy out in the woods and he picks up a rock off the ground and he makes his sword or his knife razor sharp with it. Can you really do that? And if you can, what does it take to get it done? Patrick Rohrman from MT Knives will weigh in on that. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1863 because the episode is 1863. I have three for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have The Man Without a Country. I have A New Kind of War. And I have Four Score and Seven Years Ago. And in other news... The base is stolen for the first time in baseball. The culprit is Ned Colbert of the Philadelphia Keystones. But the dates are shaky, so if someone else tells you different, believe them. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is established. If you read your Bible carefully, you will note the seventh day or Sabbath is not Sunday. Sunday is certainly a special day in Christian circles, but the new Christian group decides the second coming is nigh, so they are squaring themselves up a little. And... New York draft protests turn into a riot. 119 are dead. Irish immigrants protest the draft primarily because they can't afford the $300 price tag to excuse themselves from service. That's almost $6,000 in 2015 money. Hmm. So I was reading through this today, and I'd come up with a song for the end of the show that I ended up changing when I read The Man Without a Country because of another song that I'll tell you about when we get to the song at the end of the show today. But it's what made me choose this piece. Quote, Nolan died on board U.S. Corvette Lennett, latitude 2 degrees, 11 seconds south, longitude 131 degrees west, on the 11th day of May, Philip Nolan. New York Herald, obituaries, August 13, 18, 
63. The poor wretch. It is a wonder he had any name left to him at all. But let's go back in time. The year is 1807, and U.S. Army Lieutenant Philip Nolan faces a court-martial and is punished for his sins in supporting Vice President Aaron Burr. In his vile treachery against the United States of America, Nolan shouts of the court, Damn the United States! I wish I may never hear of the United States again. And like a character in It's a Wonderful Life, his wish is granted. He is sentenced to live the rest of his life on shipboard and never hear news of his forsaken country again. At first he is glad of it. He is granted a small cabin all to himself. After all, who would have him? After years pass, he longs for news, but it is not to be. He builds a small shrine in his cabin dedicated to his love for country, the country he had once scorned. He warns the young sailor, quote, Remember, boy, that I, behind officers in government, and people even, there is the country herself, your country, and that you belong to her as you belong to your own mother. Yes, the breath of life was breathed into her by a divine presence. Bless that flag and be grateful. Amen. But wait, Philip Nolan is not dead because he was never alive. This is a short story submitted anonymously by Everett Hale, the great-grandnephew of Nathan Hale. It is not a hoax, but it feels so real that it is taken as real by the public. In the midst of the darkest day of the war between the states, Everett Hale has written a story to inspire love of country, not just individual states, but the Union as a whole, the Union forever and ever. My take by Alex Shrugged. I saw the movie The Man Without a Country. It was inspiring. But why were they playing in a class in my high school? The Vietnam War was going on at the time, and some of the students were talking about skipping the country to go to Canada. I decided I wouldn't run. It was the first adult decision I had ever made. As it turned out, I didn't even have to suffer that decision. The war ended a couple of weeks before my 18th birthday. But what was Everett Hale trying to do with his story? Enlistments were down. People were divided and discouraged. Hale was a minister, and he wanted to bring the whole congregation together. What congregation? The political congregation. In case you haven't noticed, wars are being run like religious wars. We are on the side of virtue and light. They are on the side of darkness and evil. They must be stopped in the name of what? In the old days, there was usually a strong religious component to war. But as religious fervor fades into the background, other motivations must be stimulated. The girls really love a man in uniform. Truth, justice, the American way. Politics has become a secular religion, so beware. The God of government shall have no other gods above it. The God of government shall have no other gods above it. Hmm. I have a lot I could say here, but I'm going to save it for my closing piece with the song that I've chosen for the end of today's show. And I'll just leave it at that. So let's go ahead right away. And get into uh, your first question for expert council members. We have a question here for John Pugliano in regards to investing in international funds and specifically with the allocation of your total investment. You know, with mutual, I'm not sorry, mutual funds, but uh, 401ks, you don't get like, you know, uh, to pick whatever you want. They give you a list of funds and then you allocate percentages. So this guy's getting some advice to put 25% into international funds and wants to know John Pugliano's feelings on that. OTSP listeners, today we're going to answer Jamie's question about getting diversification in a 401k retirement plan by investing 25% in international funds. Jamie's question arises because, you know, we're always being told that you should have diversification. One way of attaining that is by putting 25% in U.S. large cap stocks, 25% in, say, small cap stocks, 25% in international funds, and 25% in bonds, or some variation of that. 
Generally, if you go to a run-of-the-mill investment advisor, they'll put you in four to six mutual funds that give you that type of diversification. And then every three or six months, they'll mix things up a bit. I've noticed that when I review people's accounts, it seems like on a quarterly basis when they charge you a fee, they'll make modifications to your account. I'm not really a proponent of doing things that way. I'm more of a swing trader. For example, I wouldn't be opposed to having 100% of my funds in large cap U.S. stocks if I thought large cap U.S. stocks were going to outperform. Or the corollary being, if I thought the U.S. market was overheated and the countries like Japan and Germany and China were going to do better, then why not put your money someplace where it's going to receive more of an international exposure? Uh, But I'm digressing here. That's a topic for another day. Uh, What Jamie is specifically asking, though, is, Is it a good idea to to put 25% in these international funds? Because, number one, these funds tend to be more expensive than just a run-of-the-mill S&P 500 index fund. And if you're investing in the S&P 500, aren't you actually getting international exposure anyways? And yes, Jamie, you're absolutely 100%. International funds are almost always more expensive than investing in a straight-up U.S. index fund which might be one of the reasons that financial advisors steer you to investing in those more expensive funds. And then, Jamie, you are also correct about receiving international exposure by investing in the S&P 500. About, you know, more or less, we can call it 50% of revenues of S&P 500 companies come from overseas. And that will especially fluctuate with the strength of the U.S. dollar and things like that. But for our purposes, you know, 47 49%, somewhere in that range of total sales are coming from overseas. And so I 100% agree with you. And in fact, when I was in corporate America and I was locked up in a 401k plan, I generally only invested in the S&P 500 fund that was available to me. And what I tried to do was swing trade it. If I thought the economy was looking good, I'd I'd move my money into the S&P 500. If I thought we were due for a pullback, I'd move that out and put it into a money market fund. I didn't fool with all the other funds that were available, primarily because there were blackout times and and trading restrictions of how long I had to hold something. And I'd be charged more if I sold something within, you know, like six weeks. And I just didn't fool with all that. I'd pretty much just keep it in the S&P 500. In fact, I said before in my podcast that if I only had one fund that I could invest in, it would be the S&P 500, because I think that gives you the broadest market exposure with the least effort. And really, in and of itself, the S&P 500 is the market. When you hear people talking about, oh, the market was up 5% this year, the market was down 2% last year, they're generally talking about the S&P 500. It is the market. It is the benchmark. I do want to finish up here by saying that I'm not an enemy of diversification by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I think that you should not invest in international funds or foreign stocks. I recently just sold a position in Alibaba, which is a Chinese stock, and I also closed out a a position in a ETF that was invested in Switzerland. So I'm not at all against having direct international exposure. I'm just saying that for people that want to keep it simple in their 401k plan, you do receive an awful lot of exposure to international markets simply by investing in the S&P 500. If you don't believe that, just pay attention during earnings announcements and listen to the companies that are in the S&P 500 that are reporting where their revenues are coming from. For example, one of the concerns with Apple has been that they have such an exposure to China and they're selling so many iPhones over there that if the economy's cooling down in China, that's going to have a big impact on Apple's profit. 
And as the economies cooled off in China, we've seen that have a, a big impact on large American companies across the board, from coal companies to food companies like Hershey to equipment companies like Caterpillar. So yes, you do get a great deal of exposure by keeping it simple and keeping things in the S&P 500. But hey, if you want to branch out and you want to get some additional exposure, you want to go into international funds, just know what you're investing in. And also pay attention because the term international funds is very broad. It's like saying that you own a firearm. Well, do you own a pistol? Do you own a rifle? Is it a hunting gun or is it a tactical gun? The same thing is true with international funds. Is it a large cap? Is it a small cap? Is it focused on commodity producing countries like Brazil or Australia? Or is it focused on manufacturing companies that would be in Taiwan or South Korea? I would just caution investors that the more you branch out and move away from the S&P 500, at least understand what type of exposure you're getting and what you're investing in. Well, hey, Jamie, thanks for your question. As always, if you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or my general comments on wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Great advice from John. Uh, next up, question for Stephen Harris on inverters. If an inverter craps the bed, is there anything you can do, or do you just have to throw it away and get a new one? What can you what can you fix when it comes to inverters? Take it away, Steve. Hi, this is Steve Harris for Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. I got this great question here. It says, are inverters serviceable, meaning can I open it up and can I fix it? I was car camping in central PA, and I only brought one inverter with me. Well, there's one problem. So you know what happened? It decided to die. I had the 1,000-watt Whistler for about 10 years, when I love the Whistler brand, and it never failed me until now. When I was connecting the wires, I got a large spark. Now, okay, guys, when you're connecting any large inverter up to a battery, there are big capacitors in the inverter that hold help hold the charge they help they help supply load to the inverter when there's peaks uh, you know when there's a surge of power the capacitors dump the energy instantly a lot faster than the battery does so when you connect an inverter up a big inverter most of the time to a battery many times you'll get a you know you you will get a you know, a snap like that, like a loud clapping of the hands. Uh, and that is those capacitors charging. That's not necessarily a bad thing, nor is it probably the reason your, your inverter failed. So he says, I got a large spark. I was planning to use it for running some fans while camping and charging cell phones. I was, I was able to charge my cell phones with a small clamp on cigarette lighter adapter and a cigarette lighter plug, but I couldn't, of course, run the fans. So he was doing two as one, one as none. He had a way of recharging his cell phones directly off the battery without an inverter. Congratulations to you. You know, it wasn't a complete loss. So he continues, I do not see a fuse on the outside of the inverter and have been debating about ripping it apart, opening it up. Uh, is it serviceable? Anything, anything to salvage besides the heavy wire? Should I bring two inverters with me next time camping? Thank you. Uh, yes, you should bring two inverters with you. Although I think a thousand watt inverter is a little bit of overkill for camping. Uh, you can probably get away with a 400 watt or a 200 watt inverter easily. 
I am going to bitch for a moment, so please excuse me. On my battery bank class that I made for everyone, it is four and a half hours long and is extensively, extensively, exhaustively detailed heaven to Mercatoid on everything you can think about, about batteries and hooking up inverters and everything else. And I put in every single little detail in there, and people send me photographs of their battery banks, and I share these with people on Facebook. And they send me a photograph, and what do I see in 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 the in the photograph? I damn, I can fuse. They put fuses in the circuit. I never told addressed fuses once in my entire video, and people feel the need that they gotta have a fuse in the circuit. And one guy sent me this photograph. Oh, it was fabulous. He had a battery bank. He had a 2,000-watt inverter, a 1,000-watt inverter, and a 400-watt inverter. Big, medium, and small. And he had a fuse on the 400-watt, 1,000-watt, and 2,000-watt inverter. And then he had a big fuse in the circuit going all the way to the battery. And I'm going, holy hell. And I wrote him, I asked him, I go, how many spare fuses do you have? He goes, whoa, none. I don't have any spare fuses. Then why did you put a damn fuse into the circuit? People, you are taking a circuit. You're taking a circuit, a cable, the size of your finger, and you are putting this little itty-bitty fuse into the circuit the size of your finger. If you have a hundred and six, if sorry, if you have a 1,600-watt inverter on a battery bank or on the car battery, that will draw over 133 amps when it's pulling 1,600 watts. So what are you going to do? Put in a 150-amp or 200-amp fuse? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Whistler inverters can take a surge of double their rating for 10 seconds. 10 seconds, okay? Cheaper inverters like the Cobra are 0.1 seconds. Whistlers are 10 seconds. So that's not a, a 1,600 watts giving you 133 amps uh, just for a moment. That is up to 3,200 watts for 266 amps for up to 10 seconds. So you know what your little 150 amp fuse is going to do when you plug in something like a sump pump and it comes on and it needs a surge? in order to kick on, or you plug in your refrigerator into your inverter on your car, and the automatic defrost in the freezer comes on. There's little heat elements in the freezer, and they come on for like two minutes every once in a blue moon just to melt the frost off of the inside of the freezer. There's nothing you can do about it. You just have to handle the load. So you know what's going to happen when that happens? It's going to blow your fuse. And you're going to be standing there in the dark, in the wet, in the cold, with water up to your ankles, with your wife yelling at you, your kids screaming, why are we in the dark? And you're going to be standing there, well, the fuse blew, and you don't know where your spare fuses are. And when you plug your spare fuse in, it's going to blow anyways. So why is this bitching relevant? The point is, it is a very intelligent device, most inverters. They have little microcomputers in them, and they have advanced protection circuits in the inverter. Like I said, it's going to draw 133 amps, What do you, and it's going to surge to 266 amps. What are you going to do, put in a 500-amp fuse? 
you just can't interrupt a circuit that big with a, by putting the, a fuse with, with multiple connections in it. I mean, it basically, it's like taking 25% of your battery away because you're putting a voltage drop into the circuit, and the inverter is going to see the voltage drop, and the voltage drop is not going to be the real voltage, and it's going to think it's got less voltage than it does, and the inverter is going to automatically shut off at 10.5 volts. And, and it's really not going to be at 10.5 volts. It's going to shut off and it's going to leave you in the dark. So don't put fuses into your inverter circuits at all. The inverter is smart. You have to learn to speak what I call inverter. It will squeal at you. It'll go, ee! you know, when it's the voltage is too low, it'll go, ee! if the voltage is too high, it'll go, ee! if the voltage is, if the load is too much, it'll go, ee! and then it'll turn off. Okay, and you'll you go and you'll like plug your air compressor in again and restart the inverter, and it'll go eek, and then inverter and the compressor will go clunk 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 clunk, then it'll go clunk, it'll turn itself off. Okay, that's a sign that your load is too high. Now, some inverters actually have fuses that are properly rated on the back of the inverter, and these will be big blade fuses that you can get in any auto supply store or Amazon, and you can replace the fuse. Other inverters, you will have to open them up, and you will find fuses either in sockets, or you will find fuses soldered into the motherboard of the inverter, and you'll have to unsolder the fuses and solder in new ones. I actually blew an inverter by improperly hooking it up to a house to backfeed it, and I blew out some of the transistors in it. And my background is double E, and I actually found what transistors were in it and which ones were blown, and I ended up throwing the whole darn thing into the trash anyways. So if it's not a fuse on the inverter that is built into the inverter that came with the inverter that you can easily replace, then it really is not serviceable to you in a general sense. So that is the lesson for the day. Trust the intelligent circuitry of the inverter to protect the inverter from under-voltage, over-voltage, and overload. Trust it that it will protect it because it will protect itself and learn to speak inverter, as, as I say. You do not need to go and add fuses to it. If you want to open your inverter up and see if there's a blown fuse in it that you can replace, please do so. I think your 10 years that just failed on its own. I don't think it was anything that you did. And I love Whistler inverters. They're my favorite brand of all. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel reminding you you can find everything I have done with Jack and all my free prep stuff at Stephen1234.com. Keep on sending in the great questions, especially when I get a chance that I can complain. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really love it. Bye-bye. You know, one day I'm going to send him a fake question that's just designed to like completely tweak him out just to see what happens. And then whatever happens, I'm going to play it on the air. I'm just going to get him going in a level that you've never heard before. He's fun, isn't he? Anyway, uh, with that, let's move on to our next question. We have a question now from Michael Jordan from somebody that uh, you got in a pinch and used a couple uh, honey supers to make a hive body. If you don't if that doesn't make sense to you, it's just the hive body is a deep box if you're not a beekeeper, and a honey super is a not so deep box. So to make a hive body, he put two uh, honey supers together because he didn't have another hive body and he needed one. And now he's like, well, what do I do now? Here you go. 
Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, here to take your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. This question comes from Benton out of Colorado. His question states, earlier this year he had a swarm call and was able to retrieve it and bring it home to his farm. Nice. It did come right at the point of the time with massive growth. And before he had a chance to pick up a second hive body, they grew to a point of needing that second body now. In the time and in a financial pinch, he took two honey supers and added these as a temporary hive body. He states, probably a bad idea, I think. So now I have a flourishing hive that has two hive bodies that are deep, but one of the hive body deeps is actually two honey supers put together and not a hive body deep. I will need to switch these out at some point, he states. My best bet, I think, would be in the springtime when I flip my hive bodies. His question is, Number one, how do I go about moving the bees from the two honey super boxes into one deep hive body without having a massive mess? Two, what should I do with the remaining honey frames that are now full of honey, pollen, and brood when I make this switch? Three, is there anything else I should do or take in not doing this process? Hey, thanks, Jack and Michael, for all you're doing on the Survival Podcast. Benton. All I can say is, <laughs> good job, Benton. Way to improvise on the time of need, man, and trying to help your bees without waiting or procrastinating. So, Benton, you have put two medium super boxes together to make one deep super, placing in medium frames in each one. Now, don't panic. When moving frames, you've just made this super cool system, and you can use it at any time. You just made it an easy way to split your hives and make queens by using the, uh, the frames that you've already installed. You can all just let them make burr comb all the way to the bottom of the frames, to the bottom of the deep super, with no problems. It's almost like a little top bar section. You won't be able to spin them, but you've got to remember, this is a brood chamber that you're working with. Here are some things that you can do. So spring comes, and you want to flip your boxes. Now flipping your boxes, as Benton stated, is to take the upper deep super and place it on the bottom, moving the lower super and placing it on the top. This makes the bees start off in the new year from the bottom of the hive once more and then moving up. So here's something that you can do. Just keep using them. It is not hurting anything. And I understand it's not conventional, but it's working, right? And if it's working, it's not broken, so why fix it? Or you can move the frames out and place them in a deep box, letting the bees make long burr comb, which is mostly drone comb, filling to the bottom of the space in the deep box. You can put the frames and cut out a little piece of wax foundation and put it on the bottom, making make worker bees from the bottom of the frame all the way through the box. Let's also use the frames in the deep box 
and worry about other things in the medium frames later. You can let them make the brood in the medium frames and then pull them out. And then when you're done making all the brood and they're full of brood in these medium boxes, pull the frames completely out and place queen cups on the bottom of the frames and place them in a deep box. Now remember, it usually takes almost 15 extra days for honeybees to hatch and queens only 15 days. So in 24 days, brood will hatch, but in 15 days, queens hatch. So this is a super good way of making splits. So let's go back. Let's add a cover, a queen excluder, over your, over your brood box. You pull out the medium deep frames that have cat brood, placing queen cups on them, and placing them in that deep box above the queen excluder. They will make queens, and you'll have nurse bees that are going to hatch, and you've just done a really super easy split. You have maybe even three queen cups put on with one and a half of the brood because of the medium frames. Or you can just make a whole series of queens with hatching nurse bees to help feed them by putting queen cages over the queens. Now I would use the frames with the honey and pollen to help you with these splits. You know, if you, if you look at it, that's basically what splits are, is taking some brood, honey and pollen, and adding a queen which you're just already just adding a queen to these bottoms of these half frames in a deep box. So you can do it this way and remove the flames out slowly in the hives that you do yearly. And if you go ahead and you start doing this process in the nook boxes, when you add the nooks, every year you remove the in frames out of your hive, splitting the nucleus of the hive, adding new frames, allowing the bees to work at the beginning and the end of the years. So you can even rotate out these frames with the burr combs or the queens that you've made in and out of these boxes as they go by rotating in new frames in the center and pulling out the ends. So it's not going to be a bad problem for you. It's just going to take some management. Don't worry about how much mess you're going to make and moving the frames out. You just need to work them as long as you've been working them and they don't have a lot of burr comb or honey where you cut them and honey runs all over I've transferred hold colonies out of a brood box into a new one with no problem. And that way I can do repairs on the boxes when needed, repaint them, work on them, and then reuse them. There's never any mess. You just have to keep up with your management skills. Now, if you pull frames and put them in the deeps, try to use just nice wax foundation. You're going to replace this foundation anyway as your time progresses. So just be cool. Use it for what you need to, and don't think of it as a problem, but think, how am I going to use the situation that I'm in? And it looks like, to me, you've got brood with pollen and honey. You just need to add a queen. Sounds like you've already started splits for your next year. I am the bee whisperer Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Hey, catch me at PrepperCon, Casper, Wyoming, this weekend, the 27th and 28th of August. I'll be selling honey and talking about bees. Also get into one of my How to Winter Your Bees class in September, like the one we're having at Freedom Family Farms in Calhan, Colorado. And then join me at the last two events of the year in October, doing the Harvest Moon Mead Making Party at Neoteric Farms in October 15th at Lakewood, Colorado. And of course, my favorite one at Big Jack's Nine Mile Farm, October 26th and 29th. It's my favorite event at the end of the year. 
and it helps me like regain all my stuff seeing some great stuff that people do all over the world. That's all I have at this time. Hopefully it helps you out, Benton. And as always, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Try to buy all your stuff from a college industry because we all have to start somewhere. And help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to be that guy that needs help too. Yeah, that's why I have a friggin' expert counsel right there. I couldn't even begin to tell you what you just learned from Michael Jordan at all. So thanks, Michael, for that. Next question is for Brian Black on concealed carry. If you're a concealed carry person and you want to carry, you know, while you're at work and all, but you have to wear, you know, dress clothing. Uh, what, what works best for that? Uh, Brian, take it away. Hey, TSB. Brian Black here. TS with another expert counsel question. This one comes from Ben who asks, what does, what do I recommend for carrying while dressing? Sorry. What do I recommend for carrying while in dress clothes? Uh, I recently applied for my concealed permit, but I'm required to wear slacks and dress shirt for work. How or where should I carry to keep from printing? Thanks. So then uh, I used to actually work a job like that, too. And what I wore is I, I kind of went back and forth between a Thunderwear and a Smart Carry holster. Both of them are made for pretty deep concealment. And what's great about them is you can tuck shirt into the elastic waistband of the holster uh, so that your shirt will be tucked in, and that will keep it tucked in. But then you've got access to your holster by just you know grabbing your pants and pulling out and grabbing the, the gun to display it. So I would recommend either of those. Um, that's probably been the most comfortable uh, that I have found while I'm wearing slacks and a dress shirt. Um, even if you're in an office setting where you're wearing a jacket, sometimes, you know, the problem is you need to take off your jacket if, you know, you're wearing on the waistband and or in the waistband or some kind of shoulder holster or something, obviously you're going to be displaying that when you take off your jacket. So there's that type of situation where you need to kind of, too. So again, underwear or smart carry, I'm looking both up. Um, I haven't bought one of those for a long time, so I'd imagine um, just a quick Google search should uh, lead you to that too. We also did a comparison article on ITS many years back that I will make sure that has the link to. Again, thanks for the question. Keep it coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstactical.com. Thanks again. Good stuff from Brian, and the, the, the only thing I'll add to it is something I've, I've kind of been on a theme with the past few questions we've had on concealed carry is, guys, don't be afraid to carry a smaller gun, right? You're, you're, the size of your gun does not dictate how well you use it. It's, a, it's not an indicator of your manhood. It's okay if your gun's small. It really is. Um, be, and I know that a lot of people want you know to carry as close to a full size as possible. I have an affinity for the forty five. Uh, generally, I'm either carrying a 45 or a 40, but I won't hesitate to carry a 9 or even a 380 um, in certain situations or formats because just a smaller weapon is more efficient and more comfortable. And you can look at this a couple different ways and say, well, what if something happens and I'm undergunned? Well, again, we have to think like what we are. Civilians that are going to be in situations that generally are crime-related and you're you're not in a situation with you know attack team and advancing on a target or something like trying to apprehend somebody. Um, concealment is actually your best weapon. The fact that you're armed and no one knows that you're armed. If something goes wrong, being able to deploy that weapon and having the 
the assailant never know it until it's done. Unless you have the opportunity to use the weapon as an intimidation factor, such as get on the ground before I blow your head off. Uh, that type of thing. But in general, if you're drawing your weapon, life is already at risk or you shouldn't be drawing your weapon. And that means it's to draw and shoot. And remember how I talked about weapons, uh, when I talk about knives, are not meant to be seen. They're not they're meant to be felt. See, this is where I think where people lose the, the understanding. The gun is a martial arts weapon. And if you think about it that way, things change. And then, you know, carrying that, you know, 8-shot 9 subcompact is a little bit less of, like, you feel like you're doing without. So no matter what you're using to carry, scaling down the gun sometimes makes carrying easier, period. Um, next up, I have a question for Doc Bones on uh, medical prep while traveling. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with over 850 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand-new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, and also the Zika virus handbook, both topics you might want to know a little about. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Nicole, who writes, What would you put in a carry-on first aid kit for an airplane? With all the changes in airport security practices, how do you, one, pack something that will fit in a carry-on, two, bring up good balance of first aid stuff that also allows you to pack personal hygiene things such as toothpaste and deodorant? What ideas do you have for attire or other items that can double as first aid items? Thanks, Nicole. Interesting you should mention this topic, Nicole, as I am a firm believer that people always overpack when they go on trips. I once spent a month in Europe out of one carry-on case, washing and drying clothes constantly, but grateful for the ease of lugging my stuff through a number of countries. Medical items that come vacuum-packed are essential for travel. H&H dressings are bandages, for example, that come in compressed 2-inch squares, but when opened, unwrap to 4 inches by 12 feet long. Most tourniquets, such as the Cat Soft or SWAT, take up little space and weight, but could save a life. Antibiotic wipes, packets of antibiotic, burn gel, and hydrocortisone cream are similarly tiny. An ace wrap, a triangular bandage, and a shake-and-break ice pack would also be welcome additions to your medical kit. Some moleskin, a sewing needle, and a lighter, most airlines let you have one these days, might be useful for blisters. Although you might not be allowed a pair of scissors, most hotels would be happy to let you borrow one. Don't forget the ibuprofen, antibiotics, and other needed meds. For the ambitious person, a pulse oximeter, a mylar blanket, and a wrist blood pressure cuff are options to help people who are having a medical problem on the flight over or during the trip. Most airplanes, I have to say, though, have a medical kit on board. You can fit all of these items in a plastic freezer bag, even if you add a little sunscreen and mosquito repellent. From a clothing standpoint, have a scarf and bandana, which could be useful for improvisation of a tourniquet. The rest of your clothes should be able to be worn in layers to avoid heat exhaustion or hypothermia. For great advice on packing smartly, go to Rick Steves' website, https colon forward slash forward slash www.ricksteves.com forward slash travel hyphen tips forward slash 
packing-light forward slash packing-smart. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And hey, make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show and our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And take a look at our entire line of medical kits designed by Nurse Amy and myself at our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Great stuff from Doc Bones there. Uh, next question I have involves fermenting feed and ending up with the right protein amounts when you're done using your own blends as you're creating fermentation. And what to use to start your fermentation for fermenting feed for your flocks as well. And uh, for that, I have Nick Ferguson. Nick, take it away. Thanks for having me on, Jack. All right, great question, John. Well, if you're keeping your birds confined then I don't recommend adding any grains to your layer feed because it's right where it needs to be with protein levels. If you're free-ranging them or they have access to some good pasture area or a pond, then you can get away with lower protein levels because they'll be supplementing their feed. But um, were I you, I look into what it would cost to change to a higher protein content layer feed and then cut it with a cheaper grain like corn, oats, or wheat. All three of those are good. Corn is probably going to be the lowest in protein content. Normally it's around 7 to 8, 9, 10%. Oats is normally around 10 to 12, around 11%. And wheat, depending on what it is, is around 12% protein. Um, and those are just general numbers. Sometimes they vary up or down several points. But uh, the reason I say that is you need to be shooting for 16 to 18% protein content for your layers. I generally like to go 18 to 20%, but that's just me. Um, I use 22% laying pellets, and I use the following mix because I don't get too technical about the amounts. They free range, so I know they're getting plenty of protein with insects and aquatic life because they have access to a, my ducks have access to a 1,300-acre reservoir. They don't use the whole thing, but... They've got quite a big amount of aquatic life that they can harvest from. So basically, I'll take like a 50-pound sack of the 22% laying pellets, and either I'll mix it with a 50-pound sack of oats, which comes out to about 16.5% protein, or I'll take that 50-pound sack of 22% laying pellets, and I'll mix it with a 25-pound sack or half a normal bag of cracked corn, which comes out to about... 17% protein. I could bump that up to like 35 pounds of cracked corn and get around my 16%, but it's normally easy to just dump out half that bag and just roll with it. So um, you might say, but my feed isn't 22% protein. Never fear, you can go to Metzer Farms website for a feed calculator, and that's www.metzerfarms.com. Metzer, M-E-T-Z-E-R, farms.com forward slash feedconversion.cfm. That's metzerfarms.com forward slash feedconversion.cfm. And now this only works with two feed items and it's a little clunky to work things out really easily, but I'm working on a feed calculator for you guys in I might do it in both Excel and Google spreadsheets that should work with multiple feed components. I made one a long time ago in a spreadsheet when I was mixing my own feed for my goats, but I don't know what happened to it. Life happens, you know. 
Um, but I hope to have it available for download on the website soon. So if you want to know when that is ready, you can sign up for my mailing list. I almost never send out emails. In fact, I had somebody email me asking why they hadn't got any emails yet because they had signed up for it and they hadn't gotten any emails. And I had to respond back, well, I just don't send out emails very often. But if you go sign up for that email list, when that gets ready, I will send out an email to let people know where they can download that. Or you can just keep checking back to homegrownliberty.com. That's my website for the download link if you're interested in that. It's always nice to not have to guess at your protein percentages when you're counting on your birds to lay well for you. So as long as you're hitting the mark around 16% protein, you should be fine. You can always combine a higher protein content feed like peanut meal or something else with your main pellet to come up with a high-protein mix, and then you can use that number to add to the lower-protein, cheaper grain to dial it back down and see if the numbers come out in your favor. It's almost always cheaper to source your own components and mix your own feed, but you do end up having to buy more feed at one time, and of course you have to spend the time to mix it all up and measure it all out. As for adding whey, I think it's great for them, but... I'd add it after your ferment is finished. And the reason being is the lactobacillus in yogurt is supposed to be a thermophilic bacteria that is more active at 110 to 115 degrees, which is uh, in Celsius, that's like 43 to 46, somewhere around there. So you're not fermenting at that high of a temp. You're fermenting at lower temp, like 60 to 70, 80 degrees, 90 degrees. Um, and it won't be nearly as active, and you might end up with all sorts of other bacteria and yeast out-competing that thermophilic lactobacillus. So you want a lacto-dominant ferment. To be sure you have that kind of a ferment, you need to culture a lactobacillus culture, but that is probably a topic that is big enough for a whole answer I probably don't have the time for that. I might do a whole podcast show on uh, fermenting again and talking about this lactobacillus culture and all the different ways that you can use this. Check out the podcast. I'll probably have an episode on this uh, in the next month or so. But until then, uh, you can look up how to make a lactobacillus culture online. And once you make that ser that lactobacillus serum... Uh, you'll do like one part serum to 20 parts water. So if you're fermenting your chicken feed, you measure out how much water you normally use, and let's just make up a number, three gallons, which is like 384 ounces of water. Yeah, 384 ounces of water. Divide that number by 20, which equals around 19, 19.2 ounces, um, and just round it up or down. It doesn't matter. It This isn't rocket science. You could put 19 ounces, you could put 20 ounces, whatever. You could put 25 ounces. Um, and you put that into that water, add your feed, make up a whole five-gallon bucket worth, and ferment your feed like you normally would. I'd do it for two or three days just to make sure it's well and fermented, and then just save a couple quarts of that fermented feed every day um, before you start the next batch. And then you won't have to keep making the serum for every batch. Just maybe start a fresh batch with serum every week or two, and you should be good to go. Oh, and I never mentioned this before because I thought it went without saying. I have so many people asking me why their animals stopped laying altogether, and it's because 
they stopped feeding the normal food and they just gave them fermented food. Don't immediately and completely change their diet to fermented feed. Always introduce new feed slowly to your animals or they'll not handle it very well. It goes for dogs and cats as well as chickens and ducks. So introduce that food slowly and let them acclimate to it. All right, guys, I got to end here. But if you're interested in more homesteading, small stock and gardening info, check out my podcast called Homegrown Liberty. We've been going since January 1st of this year. Every Friday we have a new episode and you can download every episode from 1 through 30, something, uh, 33, 34, something like that at my website. Thanks for the great questions. Keep them coming. And like I said, you can check out all my work at homegrownliberty.com. I'm Nick Ferguson. I'll talk to you guys later. Do good things. I want to reinforce what Nick said there at the end about abrupt changes to feed. Um, even if you think you're doing better, I've seen birds given a higher protein feed than they're accustomed to and being, go on a quick switch. And I've seen it kill their egg laying dead when you would expect, above all things, that it would actually increase egg laying. And depending on how high you go, it may or may not be able to do it because there is too much protein uh, when it comes to feeding ducks and chickens and things like that. You can go too high. Um, some people think they're going to be clever and, and like feed their, uh, their laying ducks, um, a high protein, like game bird mix or something like that. No guys, that's, that's not what they need. Um, so you want to keep, you know, I, I'm kind of a big fan of about 18%. I feed my birds an 18% protein feed. We get really great production out of them. Uh, and they love it. They're also getting additional protein, but it's what they choose to get. So even though you might, let's say, go from an 18 to 22%, 22% is a fine uh, thing. You, it's not too high. It's You're probably spending more than you should, but it, it shouldn't destroy laying. But if you did it, what I'm trying to say is if you did it in a day, um, it can completely throw off their, their laying. And more than chickens, ducks don't like change. They don't like change in what they're being fed. They don't like being, you know, having a change in what they expect to get. So if you're feeding your birds uh, a regular feed ration and they're getting fermented feed as a treat and you stop feeding fermented feed for as a treat, they can have an egg rebellion and stop laying. I'm, I'm dead serious. Uh, we feed our, instead of fermented feed, we feed our birds every morning sprouted sunflower seeds that we sprout in five-gallon buckets. Well, I ran out of sunflower seeds recently and it was a it was a daggone revolt. Fortunately, I had uh, gone and got more seed, and even though I didn't have sprouts for them, I was able to pacify them with some seed. But I would say the egg count went down the next day, and it took about a day to rebound. So ducks more than chickens, guys, they don't – you've got to understand, if you want ducks to give you steady production, they need steady treatment. That means they get let out about the same time every day. They get put to bed about the same time every day. In relation to lighting, so as the day length change, that changes. Um, you don't want them scared. If you have little kids coming over, something like that, you have to make sure that people that are bringing them, though, they can't be chasing your ducks around and stuff like that. If they get emotionally disturbed, if they get triggered, right, then they just don't give you eggs for a few days or more. Um, it's It's happened here with certain things that have upset them. It's not like they're little canaries or something and they're going to die or whatever, but you can disrupt things just by changing that routine. Next, I got one more for you today from the Expert Council. This is from Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives, and it's a question about sharpening knives with a rock, not a stone like you, you know, but a, a rock you find on the ground in the woods. 
Can you really do that, Patrick? And if so, how? Hello, Jack and TSP audience. This is Patrick Rorman with mtknives.net. Today's expert counsel, counsel question of the week is comes from Dave Clark. He says, movies versus reality. Can you sharpen a blade with a rock like you see the grizzly warrior in the movies quietly running a rock of some kind over his sword? And the answer to the question is, yes, you can. However, having the right tool for the job can never be understated. You also have to have the knowledge and know how to sharpen before you're in the situation. So I would suggest that if you don't already know how to sharpen or if you'd just like to improve your abilities of sharpening to pick up Beyond Razor Sharp and learn how to properly sharpen your knives, which can easily be transferred to sharpening axes, machetes, and even swords. There are products on the market, such as the Lansky Puck, that is great to throw in a bug-out bag. It's small, durable, and uh, will get the job done. Another cheap alternative would be simply to carry some sandpaper, such as like wet-dry paper in your pack, along with something solid and flat to put it on for sharpening. When it comes to sharpening, the length of your abrasive makes a big difference in the efficiency of getting the job done. So that's the good thing about sandpaper is you have a long surface area to sharpen your edge. I hope this answers your question. Be sure to send more in. This has been Patrick with mtknives.net. Have a great weekend. Yeah, I guess my additions to this one are there's there's a lot of things you could do, but that doesn't mean you should definitely rely on them. I remember it was many years ago. I don't remember where. It may have been an issue of Backwoods Home Magazine where uh, someone wrote a little brief article, and it pointed out that you could actually use the unglazed rim of the underside of a coffee cup to sharpen a knife because it's basically ceramic. I went, well, I wonder. So I went and got a knife that was, you know, out of my drawer that wasn't really sharp. It wasn't, so, I didn't want to start with nothing, right? Like a, you know, like a butter knife edge or something. But it's a knife that, you know, wouldn't cut hair. You'd call it dull. It's probably still would cut through raw meat okay, but it wouldn't do it really nice. And, uh, went to work with it and was able to get it hair shaving sharp. It took a while. Took quite a while. But I was able to do it. So like, okay, I know I can do that, but that's not like, how I'm going to, uh, you know, handle my knife sharpening. Uh, a couple uh, links that I've added uh, to the show notes for you. One, uh, Patrick mentioned the Lansky Puck. That is a great item to have in a pack or a bag. It's a dual grit little sharpening puck. Sounds sounds like what it is, you know. Uh, a finer and a coarser grit. And uh, they're about 12 bucks with free shipping on Amazon. So I've got a link to that. I also have a link to EmptyKnives.net's website where you can get um, the water stones that Patrick recommends. And these are like top-notch, best of the best. If you want to do hand-based sharpening with stones, you can't get better stones than what he offers. And he has two different grid sizes. You can get one, the other, or the both of them in a combo. Uh, they're not cheap, but that's because they're the best you can get. Uh, the other thing is I did a, a write-up on a product called WorkSharp uh, that I think is an outstanding sharpener. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small belt sharpener. And uh, I have a link in the show notes as well to that write-up uh, where I did the write-up on that. So, yeah, you can sharpen knives with just about anything, but it doesn't mean that you should rely on just about anything. You should probably learn 
the right skills and the right tools to keep your knives shaving sharp so that they can do a good job for you. And I mean, always remember when you're working with knives, that everybody seems to be afraid of a sharp knife. And yes, if you cut yourself, you can cut yourself much deeper uh, and much more easily with a very sharp knife. But in my experience, I've found that people tend to be more likely to cut themselves with a dull knife. Because a dull knife doesn't do its job right, therefore it creates slippage and mistakes and frustrations. And when that happens, then you really cut yourself because you're impacting yourself with real force. And even dull knives do a surprisingly good job of cutting skin and flesh. It's, 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 it's a weird thing. It's just the way knives in the human body, unfortunately, sometimes work. With that, if you enjoyed this show and you liked what you heard today and you want to help support it, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. But don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Not this week. I'm telling you, don't do it. Do it next week. A sale's coming next week. I'm going to tell you now what the deal is. And I'm going to tell you, don't even get a membership until Thursday of next week. Thursday of next week, I'm coming out with the 30-30-30 sale. What is that? MSB for $30 a year. You get 30 hours to buy it, so it's going to run from Saturday, Thursday morning to Saturday afternoon. And uh, then what's the third 30? I'm not going to tell you yet. I've worked out a special deal. It's a special deal on a new product. It's for all MSB members, those that join during the sale, and anybody that's already a member. It's a product you're going to want. It's very, very, very freaking cool. And I'll give you some hints. It's completely legal to take with you to a sporting event or carry on an airplane. Yep. But you'll never feel unarmed in those situations ever again. I got something, and I'm, it's not what the it's not what the owner's calling it, or the maker's calling it. I'm calling it the Skull Crusher. What is it? How does it work? How can it possibly be okay to take wherever you go? <laughs> You're gonna have to wait till next week for me to tell you. But it's gonna be part of the thirty 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 sale. All right, so that's coming on Thursday next week. Next up, I want to tell you we did uh, release the seats for the uh, workshop today. Uh, at nine, at uh, 8 a.m., and it took about two hours and 20-odd minutes, and all sold out. Uh, I think the first 24 sold out in like five minutes, people that really wanted to make sure they got to go. I actually felt really good that it didn't sell out like the whole thing in five minutes because I felt like this morning, God, I hate telling – I really do. I, I mean, I know it's like – it's not just marketing in the words of you know Paul Wheaton – When you say, like, I don't want to turn people away from something, people think it's like a sales gimmick or something, but people love coming to these events, and we have a lot of people that come back year after year, and, um, you know, the thought of having to tell people no, I, I, I just don't like it. And I have to tell people no because I have limited space and what have you, but I, uh, you know, when, when I had over two hours to, to sign up, I felt like anybody that really wanted to come had the opportunity to sign up, so that's that's cool, and I'm... I'm glad that uh, was you know made available to people and, and people will be here. Over the next week, I'm going to go through all my planning stuff where I print out everybody's form they fill out and figure out how many cars I have that are parking for the duration, how many cars that I have are going to be in and out, how many people are ride sharing and things like that. And I'm going to go out and figure out all my parking and I'm going to see if I can fit any. I might release two, three, four more. I, I can't promise that. I, I want to do it. It's 
it makes financial sense for us because like there's a there's a break even point on this and then like there's a point where you actually are profitable and four more people would be more profit which for all the work we do would be great um and it would be nice to let more people come but we just i i can't fit the people i can serve you but i can't fit you so i'm going to work on some ideas with that and uh you know talk to some of the people that are coming about exactly what we can do to make it easy for them to uh to maybe allocate us more space and if i can i will and if i can't i'm sorry uh one year maybe i'll be able to buy this piece of land next door to me and then you know we could run 60 person events and i i don't think we'd sell out anymore I think anybody that wanted to come would be able to come uh but that's neither here nor there and it's not now that's for sure but thank you to all of you who support me and you know thank you to all of you that are coming to this workshop and spending your money and your time to be here Um, you know, after eight years of doing this, sometimes you wonder, am I still reaching people? And when you open the doors for something like that, and it does sell out that quickly, you realize that you still are reaching people. So thank you to all of you who have supported me over the years in all, every way possible, whether it's MSB, whether it's buying through our sponsors, whether it's coming to our events, whether it's just an email to self to say thank you, or whether it's, uh, you know, like the, one of the biggest things you can do is, is, is telling other people. Uh, about what we do that's it, it's really appreciated the other way you can support us though if you if you want to and it's it's really simple it's as about as easy and painless as it gets is the next time you're going to buy something on amazon go to tspaz.com t-s-p-a-z.com just go there put a put a, a bookmark on your phone or your tablet or your computer and always use it or what have you you know and uh, just go buy your stuff on amazon that you were going to buy anyway and we get supported by that i mean that's there there's no easier way you could possibly support us No more painless way than that because it's stuff you're going to buy anyway. However, I do review items every day, every work day of the week anyway. Today's item is a product made by Prime Wire and Cable. It's called, it's a timer. It's a photocell activated countdown timer. It sounds really sophisticated. I like it because it's really, well, it's jackproof. Even I can't screw it up. The way it works is you plug it into an outlet. It has two more outlets. You plug any devices you want into those outlets that are electrical. You push a button. That turns it on and your device comes on. You keep pushing the button and a little light thing goes down and you can select between two hours, four hours, eight hours, 12 hours, and dusk to dawn. And all that means is how long will it stay on after it gets dark out. So if you click two hours and it gets dark at eight o'clock, at eight o'clock when it goes to dusk, your device will come on, will stay until 10 o'clock and automatically shut off. There's no wheels and dials and multiple programming screens. It's one button. You just select what you want. It blinks, and then the thing goes off, and it's set. That's it. And, uh, I mean, these obviously are great for using for Christmas lights, but it's it's not Christmas yet, even though I don't know they've got Halloween crap out and pumpkin everything already, and the Christmas crap's in one of the stores I was in last week. I don't get it, but it's September. But uh, it, it, what I use it for, as, as the days do shorten, and I want to extend the laying period of my birds, it's great for that, and... If I want lighting out in the front of our property, so like when we're away after dark and we come home, it's nice and lit up. Or if we have to go out to take garbage out after dark, it's all lit up. You know, you put some lights up, you set this thing with those lights, you set it for however many hours you want, and then you have that well lit up outside. But, you know, while you're getting ready to go to bed and all, your timer just shuts them off. And again, what I like about it is simplicity. The stuff I try to recommend, guys, affordable, simple, works, and high value to cost ratios. Um, this is designed to work outside. It works really good. It's got great reviews. 
And, um, you know, I would actually say this is the type of, of timer to buy, even if you don't buy on Amazon, even if you don't buy this one. Uh, when you're looking for a timer and you're thinking, I don't want to deal with wheels and dials and multiple screens and all this crap. I just want one that works. This is the type of timer to get. So take a look at it and you'll know what you're looking for. This Christmas comes around. If you're, you know, buying lighting in the store for your decorations, look for something like this. If you don't have one yet, this is the easy way to go. Of course, you can support this entire community by shopping through the TSP business directory. Um, today we have a supporting vendor of the directory called DC Custom Design. They specialize in customized metal fabrication. They've done everything from custom metal signs to dining room tables. You can check them out at the TSP directory or call 308-455-7642. And that brings us to our closing segment today, today's closing song. Um, this does stretch back to our history segment where a story was written about a man who forsake his country. And he then longed to return to it and said that his country owned him and owned us and that there was no higher cause in patriotism, agnosium, as though that the nation itself, which, make no mistake about it, the way that word nation or country was used there is not a group of people bound by a common ideal, but the concept of the state itself, the the state that will have no god higher than itself, the state that, that requires service and obedience, that state. And the people took the story to be real, even though the author of the story never intended it to be real. And there's a lesson there. I remember watching a show one time, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of The Amazing Randy, Amazing Randy. This is a guy that says, you know, all this stuff about people can talk to ghosts and people really can levitate, you know, these yogis that say they can levitate or whatever. Um, he has stated that any person, I'm not even sure if he's still around, this guy's been around so long, but he probably is. But many years ago it stated that if someone can show him something that they do, some mental trick, some mind reading, some making a spoon bend, whatever it is, and he can't replicate it, he'll give them a million dollars. And no one has ever gotten his million dollars yet. Just saying. And he was doing a documentary, and they, it was in Australia, where apparently the New Age thing is really, really, really ramped up. And they had this lady. Don't worry, it all comes back to this here in the song in a minute. They had this lady that was pretending to be one of these people that can channel spirits. You know, I'm speaking as the Archangel Angel Michael or whatever. And what she said is that when she's channeling, her heart stops. Okay? And this Randy sets this whole thing up. And um, they, they had a, a certified nurse sitting next to her, taking her pulse at her wrist. It should already tell you something's not. Right, you know, because um, just think about it. you want to monitor her heart, you monitor the actual heart. But no, the nurse is taking, uh, she's got a good, strong pulse. She goes into her trance, blah, 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 blah. She starts answering all these questions from the audience. She's given all these outstanding, amazing answers. And the nurse, you know, I would swear on a Bible, she has no pulse. They even have another person come and check her and no pulse. And then it ends. And the audience is totally convinced that it's real. Randy comes out. The lady admits it's a scam. He admits it's a scam. So we did this to teach you something. And shows that what she had 
was a rubber, like what do you call them, a uh, racquetball, between her arm and her chest on a certain artery or blood vessel that with a specific compression basically killed the feeling of the pulse in the wrist. Over half the audience didn't believe that. They believed the first story. They thought it was a scam, that, that, they, were, that, that they were trying to have their faith tested or something and, and belief in the afterlife or something like that. In other words, when, when it fits what people want to believe, they will be, believe a fiction over the truth, and they will actually get angry over the truth, and they will lash out in violence over the truth. And I imagine there might be some people that would feel that way about this song. It's called Another Man's Cause. It's by a band called The Levelers. And it's, this is an English band, and I guess te technically they're an English rock band. For me, this is like the edge of punk. It's not punk. It's not punk rock, but it's like... Uh, it's like a, a rock band that's punkish, right? And it's my limit for what I, what I, what I like when it comes to punk. They kind of re remind me of the Dropkick Murphys or an Irish band, uh, when they're not screaming, right? Uh, which ironically, this, this, this song's kind of very reminiscent of Greenfields of France by Dropkick Murphys. But Another Man's Cause is not about an old war, an ancient war. It's about recent times and recent wars. And here's the chorus. Your daddy died in the Falklands, fighting for another man's cause. And your brother, he was killed in the last war. Now your mother's lying home alone. And the next brother is going off to die in today's war. Um, and the Falklands, for many young people, what the Falklands? I don't know. The Falklands are a group of islands off the coast of South America that were in contention. Um, the British decided to reclaim Um, I won't even get into the Falkland Islands War, but it's a very small, minor conflict. The reason I actually like that that line is in there is men did die in that conflict, though we didn't hear much about it, and it wasn't us. And we tend to think of, like, only the United States and USA number one and the foam finger and all that, and we don't realize the cost of war not just to the nations that we go to war with, but the nations that go to the war at our side. Nations like Australia and Canada and the United Kingdom. And that those young men and women die and bleed the same blood, and the same blood is blood on all sides. And, and, and many times throughout history, there have been wars that, that there was no alternative that The, the, the side that was good had to stand and fight for, for its own survival or for the survival or safety of others. But there's been far more wars fought where the men should have never been, which is another line in this song. You know? Um, let me give you some more lyrics from this song. Every day she sees his face on the picture on the fireplace with your brother as he was leaving school. Then a day came five years ago. You said, Mother, I need to know. And you spoke the words your brother spoke before. I know the things my daddy done. I've seen the medals that he won. And I know that this is what he would have wanted for me. I come from a family that served. I served. My father. Several uncles both grandfathers, and on one side a great-grandfather. 
many great uncles. We served in time of war. I served during the first Gulf War. I have uncles that served in Korea and Vietnam, a father that served in Vietnam, grandfather that served in World War II, a great-grandfather that served in World War I. When I was a teenager and I went into service, I knew I didn't want to be a career soldier, and I joined because I believed that I wanted to have something in my life bigger than myself. I didn't join to go to war. I joined and whew, then there was one, right? I, and I didn't join to be in combat. I joined to, to, to be a mechanic, to, to get out of the little town, but I, I wanted to serve. And I, I realized, and I've said this before on the air, if I were an older man and I had been a teenager at the time that Alex Shrugged was, who wrote the history segment today, and had been a little bit older, where you know I could have gone to Vietnam, I know me at that time, and I know that with the concept being the communist threat and the domino theory and all, I would have went hell on into it. When I was in high school and we studied the Vietnam War and we studied the protests and the draft dodgers and everything, I really thought, what's wrong with these people? And the line there, I know that this is what he would have wanted for me. I know my father would have wanted me to go. I think a lot of surviving family members of men who died in war would think that's what their fathers would have wanted. But in many instances, if you talk to those that went and came home, it's not what they want for their kids. It's not what they want for their kids. There is a nobility in service, and I want you to realize that this song, while Annie War is not soldier, uh, Annie Soldier, this song calls the heroes what they are, heroes. The heroes that died. But it doesn't mean that they died a death that was worth dying. It just means that they believed in what they were doing and they did it for the right reasons in their heart. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to risk. So when you're sold on the next war, because there'll be another one, when they're making the case to you that we're the side of light and the other is the side of dark, even if the other side is dark, Unless they're a clear threat to us, some of the greatest victories in war are the wars that were never fought. The Cold War springs to mind. Isn't it a great thing that the Cold War never became a hot war? And we were convinced all through it, the Soviet Union would dominate the world if it wasn't for the United States. And what happened in the Soviet Union is what happens to most regimes that become too totalitarian. It collapsed on itself. And instead of worrying about what someone else is doing, since nations with totalitarian regimes tend to collapse on themselves, maybe we should be worrying about what our own nation is doing. So listen to this song. I hope you like it. And I hope those of you that are very patriotic can understand something. Patriotism is about your nation. Blind patriotism is about your state. I am not a patriot to the state that is the United States. I am a patriot to the ideals that are the nation that is this true nation that is the United States of America. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Just another firefight for the people of this little town. But for the dying soldier, well, he's feeling ten years older as he's lying face down on the ground. All the words that are in his head and all the words his mother said as she would put into bed back home. Cause you're dead. 